7 are means, and it's the number of perfection and the number of completion. So a couple things happen. First of all, I ask the question, Jesus, why did you take one church's dirty laundry and share it with everybody? Like if, you know, Jesus, I love you and all, but if I've got a problem, just come talk to me. You don't have to go tell everybody about my issue. You know, you don't have to go share it with the whole world, uh, but that's what Jesus did. Uh, and, but, but what he was doing was, he was saying, because there are seven letters, seven churches, really this book went around to all the churches in Asia. There were much more than seven. But because, but because he gave seven, he, it was the number of completion. So it's perfection. So I want you to get it to everybody. So this now stands, and he read them to all the churches because it stands not only for that individual church, but he took what that church was dealing with, with the issues uh, and the struggles of that church, and he said, I want this to go for every church and to be a challenge for every church in Asia uh, at the time and throughout history. So now as you read each of these letters, there's seven of them, to each of these different churches, they stand as a warning and as a caution even to you and I. And so he's saying, I want you to be careful of these things. I want you to watch out for this or watch out for that. Watch out that you don't become dead or watch out that you don't become loveless. Or in this case, watch out that you don't become lukewarm. But the great thing about Jesus is he doesn't just tell us not to do something, but because of his goodness, because he loves us and cares for us, he gives us a promise at the end of every one. First of all, he says, and if you, you can read all seven letters, and he says these words, something along the lines of this, to him who overcomes. Well, that's a powerful words because it releases us to know that even though some of these things may seem difficult and hard to overcome at times, we can do it. To him who overcomes. You can do it. I can do it. Uh, but, but I can't do it for you. I can't overcome it for you. Notice he says, to him who overcomes. Not to them. Not to the father who overcomes for his family. Not for the wife who, who overcomes because her spouse won't come to church. No, no. To him, to the individual that overcomes. You're, you're fighting this battle. And if you can overcome it for yourselves, I have a great reward for you. Um. My wife and kids, and I'm not going to lie at times myself, love to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, I'm a firm believer that Chuck E. Cheese is a racket. Okay, it is a racket. Uh, but, but I have, uh, those of you that know me well know that I am I'm deeply competitive, especially with myself. So I, I get over there, and I hate the pizza. It's just cheap pizza. It's terrible. My wife loves it. She's the, the cheaper the pizza, the more she loves it. I'm not that way. Um, but I, I get into these games, and if I ever play the first game, I'm done. Like, you know, they're opening presents, and it's like, Renan, it's your son's first birthday. You need to go over here. No, no, i got to beat this game right now. And so, I, and so, but then you get on the ones with the little tickets. And I don't really care about the tickets. I just care about hitting the jackpot pot and beating the game, all right? Because then you're going to get like 200 tickets or whatever, which is great. But then you realize, you know, at the end of the night, you won 2,473 tickets. That gets you two tutu rolls and a little rubber frog. <laughs> You spent $47 on what would have cost you a quarter at Walmart. You'll know what I'm, I'm telling you. It is a racket. 
it is a racket, and they always seem to round down for me, right? So you got like 42 tickets? No, no, that's just 40. I can't give you 45. Come on, man, make it 45. The kid's five years old. No, no, I can't do it. Uh, but, but for me, it's all about winning the game myself. I have to hit this jackpot. And I sit there, and I put token and token. And you know the one that goes up and down like this, and you got to hit it right in the little market? So you're like, come on, I got this, I got this. And so now I'm getting into the rhythm, right? You know, boom, oh, I missed it again. And I'm, I'm telling you, it won't land on the jackpot. It cheats. But it's an individual thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to beat the whole world. I just want to conquer this game myself. And the same thing applies to our lives. It's not that we're playing this game against the person next to us. You're not trying to, to beat everybody around you. We are playing a game against the enemy and trying to win for ourselves. Listen, no one can take you to heaven with them. You don't get a plus one when you, when you get your invitation to the Lamb's uh, Supper. Okay, you don't. You, 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 you get yourself. You get one ticket, yours. And if you don't do it, you're not getting in. And so he says, to him, the individual who overcomes. Uh, and, and here's the wonderful thing about this specific blessing. The, the blessing and the promise that he gives in this, in this letter is actually the same a promise that he gives to the person who dies in their faith, meaning the person who uh, is a martyr or gives their life for the cause of Christ. Same one. So it's obviously a pretty good one. Even though this is like the worst church out of all seven, they get the best reward. He says, if you overcome, that verse up for me there, guys, I forget which one it is, 20 or so, 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Look what Jesus is saying. I'm sitting here up on my throne, and if you can overcome being lukewarm as a Christian and as a church, then I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. But here's the cool thing about it. He said it's not, it's not just Jesus on the throne, because he says, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So now get a picture of what he's saying. Here is God the Father, and he is sitting on his throne. Right beside him is Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm going to make some room on the throne for you, and I'm going to let you come sit with me. Why would I sit on the throne? Because the throne represents power and authority over the enemy. You want power and authority over the enemy in your life? Sit on the throne with Jesus. How do you sit on the throne with Jesus? You overcome what Jesus is talking about in this letter. This is the promise. If you can overcome this, you can have power and authority over the enemy in your life. So let's talk about the issue. I, I want to um, give you a couple of the problems of the church of Laodicea. And, uh, and then we'll give you some solutions. The first problem was this. In verse 15, he says, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold or hot. The first problem is that they were not hot, nor were they cold, and therefore they were useless. Jesus would have been fine with them being hot, and he would have been fine with them being cold, but they were neither, and because they were neither, they were of no use to them. Now, the, the city of Laodicea uh, sat, and it was a very rich, a very wealthy city uh, that had a lot of pride uh, because of their, their wealth and, and uh, kind of their fame. But just a few miles away, in this region was a is very seismic region. So there were a lot of earthquakes. 
Um, and because of that, six miles away in this little small city of Hierapolis, H-I-E-R-A-P-O-L-I-S, um, they had these hot springs that had come up from the ground. If you, ever know, if you know what a hot spring is, if you've ever been to one, it's nature's hot tub. It is literally water that has been heated by the earth's core and that comes up because of the seismic activity. It comes up through the ground and it forms these pools or these, uh, these springs. They call them hot springs. Uh, and you can go and get in them and some are cool and some are hot, some are warm. Uh, and, it's, and it's very therapeutic. Uh, it's a great thing. Uh, if you've never been to a hot spring, a natural hot spring, you should go Hot Springs, Arkansas, if you've ever heard of there. Wonderful vacation spot. Um, you, should, you should, I mean, it's really cool to get in. All right, so here's the thing. These waters in uh, Hierapolis were believed to be, uh, they were believed to have medicinal powers, healing powers, therapeutic powers. So when you went and got in them, your body would feel better. It would heal when you, as you went, but so when you came out, you would be better than when you went in. Kind of a cool thing. It's, uh, it's, it's actually been proven that when you get into a hot shower or a hot bath or even a hot tub, hot tub, your body begins to relax. Your muscles begin to relax. Your body starts to try to heal itself in some ways. Uh, your stress level actually goes down. Uh, your mind, if you ever wondered why you think so clearly in the shower, you ever wondered how you have so many great ideas in the shower? Then you get out and you can't remember what they were. It's because literally the hot water causes your mind to slow down and to calm down. So it's believable now that these, that these people would travel miles to go there uh, and get in these hot springs. They, they didn't understand the science of it like we may do today. They just knew if I can get to the hot waters when I come out, my body will feel better. You think, the, think about athletes uh, after, after games, football players, baseball players, basketball players, any type of sport. Uh, if they can, when they get out, they often go to the hot tubs, uh, though they're small, and they get in to let their bodies and their muscles relax and then begin to heal. So here's what Jesus is saying. When people come to your church, because remember he's writing first of all to a church, secondly to a group of individuals, of individual Christians. So when people come to your church, they should, when they come in, at times, they, if, if the church is hot, like the hot waters of Hierapolis, they should leave feeling healed, feeling like their stress is lowered, feeling like they are thinking more clearly, feeling like they have been uh, to therapy in some way. Uh, it's not that when you, you know, when you get out of the shower, you don't necessarily feel energized but you do feel better. You feel clean, right? And that's what he's saying. Sometimes when you go to church, you should, it should be hot. You should feel better. You should be healed when you leave church. On the flip side, he said, if you're not hot, then you should be cold. On the other side of the city, um, Hierapolis was kind of up in the mountains about six miles away. But just a couple of miles away uh, on the south side, I believe, uh, was another city called Colas. Uh, Colas. And they were famous for the exact opposite thing as the hot springs. They were actually famous because the pools and the springs that had come up in their city were ranged from cold to freezing cold. And so when, when you went to the people literally came from miles away to go to their city and get in their pools because they were refreshing and invigorating. Think about this. 
How many of you know that while it's nice and uh, beautiful weather outside, cool in the mornings and the evening, but nice during the day right now, how many know that summer is coming here in Texas? It's about to get hot, you know. So for those of you that have been praying for winter to be over, we don't have much of a spring, so I hope you were ready for summer to come because it is coming. But think about when you're out and you're hot and it's the hot afternoon, it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you've been mowing the yard, guys, or maybe ladies, and you've been working and you're, you're sweating and you're just hot, and then all of a sudden you have this opportunity uh, to go jump in a pool or a lake or a stream, and it's nice and cold, and when you first jump in, and maybe it takes your breath away for a second, but then uh, you, you, you just feel good. You feel refreshed. You feel energized. You feel invigorated. Right? How many of you know that feeling, that sensation that I'm talking about? This is specifically what Jesus is talking about happened in the city of Colossus. Because they would go there, and when they were tired and weary, if they needed healing, they didn't come here. But they, if they needed energy, if they needed to be invigorated, if they needed to be uh, refreshed and restored and renewed, they would come and they would jump in these waters. And so what Jesus is saying, when you come to church, either you should be healed, you should be uh, you should be, your stress should go down, things like that, or you should be refreshed and energized and rejuvenated in the cold water of the church. You see what I'm saying? So now you have these two extremes that Jesus is talking to. He said, I wish you were one or the other. As a church, I wish you would choose this or choose that, or, or, or maybe each service is a little different way, but for, for whatever happens, when people come into the house of God, they should feel either the cool, refreshing waters or the hot, healing waters of, of the Holy Spirit. But it's more than just a church. What happens when people spend a few hours with you? My wife was reminding me between services about how my wife loves to watch all these crazy shows about the end of the world. I don't know if y'all watch those things and how these people are building bunkers underneath the earth and, and all this stuff. And she just, she gets all into it. And after she watches for a few hours, you, you have to pull her away because a few hours with those shows and she is at Walmart stocking up with water and canned foods. <laughs> and you look over there and she's drawing out a safe room, <laughs> like, I have to say, okay, that's enough. Because a few hours watching those shows changes her. What happens when a person spends a few hours with you? You invite them to dinner. Hey, let's go to dinner. You invite another couple to come with you. You go to dinner, and then, then maybe you go to Rayo's, and you get some coffee and some gelato or whatever kind of cake you might like, and you sit there, and you just enjoy an evening out uh, having a uh, good conversation with some friends, getting to know someone. What happens when they leave you? Did they get in their car and say, man... I'm not sure what just happened, but I feel better about myself right now. I feel like I've healed in some way. I feel like I've, I went in stressed out, but I feel better. I don't feel so stressed out as when I started talking with them in the first place. I don't, I, I don't, when I went in, I had big problems, but now I feel like everything is going to be okay. Or maybe when they leave you, they went in tired and weary, and when they got to dinner, it had been a long week, and, and they had just, they'd been working a lot of overtime, but by the time they left you, they got in the car and they said, man, I don't know who that was, uh, but we got to get together with them. I feel good. I feel refreshed. I feel rejuvenated. I feel restored. I feel energized. 
You have to realize that Jesus is not writing this letter just to the church. He is writing it to every individual Christian. What happens when people come in contact with you and your life? How do they feel when they leave you? Have they gotten into hot water or cold water, or has it just been lukewarm? When the, when the power of God is working in your life and the love of Jesus is flowing through you, one or both of these things may happen every time you, you spend a significant amount of time with someone. The second problem is, uh, because they are lukewarm now, and, and not, first of all, they're not of any use to Jesus. The church is of doing no good. People come in, and, and they don't leave any difference. So, therefore, why did we even get together? Uh, but he said, not only uh, that, you're lukewarm, and because you're lukewarm, you're nauseating. Jesus said, I literally want to vomit you out of my mouth. That is just gross and unnecessary language, Jesus. I mean, really. Uh, but, but, but he's saying it's just nauseating. I, just, I, don't, I don't even know what to do with it. Watch what he says here. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, they were indifferent. They were compromising. They were complacent. They were lukewarm. And it all started with their self-reliance. In the year 60 AD, I told you this was a seismic area. In the year 60 AD, a major earthquake struck the region. And cities were toppled. Remember, most of the cities in this time were built out of clay bricks, uh, and uh, or mud clay bricks and so when the earthquake came they didn't have the great engineering that we do today they didn't have the technology that we do today and it would literally topple cities and they would just be piles of rubble and so all the cities around began to go to their government and ask for in- imperial help and say we need some help we need you to come in and help us rebuild but not the Laodiceans not this city they said we're wealthy Uh, We have everything we need. We don't need your help. Think back to those of you that were living here uh, after Hurricane Rita, Hurricane Ike, and and some of the others, uh, Umberto and and others. Uh, As a city, we were reaching out to our, our county for help. We reached out to our state for help. We reached out to our government for help. We reached out to FEMA for help. Some of us are still reaching. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> God, I got a Lord. I take every thought into captivity right now. <laughs> uh, but, but here's the thing. We, we needed help. But this city, would, it, it would be like a city looking to all of our governments and saying, we don't need your help. We can rebuild on our own. You stay out. We, we are self-reliant. We have plenty of money. We have plenty of resources. We have everything we need to rebuild. We don't need your help. They were totally self-reliant. Now, this seems like a, an admirable thing, admirable thing at first. It th- seems like something that, okay, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But truthfully, it wasn't. Because while they seemed to have everything, it actually amounted to nothing in the eyes of Jesus. The problem with self-reliance is uh, self-reliance is a slippery slope that leads us to self-centeredness. I don't need help. I have plenty of money. I can fix it myself. I can solve the problems in my marriage without you. Uh, I don't need anyone, and eventually, I don't even need a savior. 
Self-reliance says this, uh, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you, thank you for dying on a cross for me, but that'll do. That's enough. I've got it from here. I don't need you involved from here. I can take it from here. Um, when, we come, when we become too self-reliant without the need of our king, it's, it's, it's just like we're just saying, that's it, Jesus. I, I've got it. I don't need you anymore. Here's the problem with lukewarm Christians that are, are no longer re- relying upon their king, no longer relying upon their God. Uh, here's the problem. This is the place that they get to. We're not hot and we're not cold. We're lukewarm. We've got just enough Jesus to feel like we're saved, but not enough Jesus to transform our life. And so we become, we get caught up in this place where we have too much of Jesus to be comfortable in the world, but too much of the world to be comfortable with Jesus. We're caught in the middle. We're stuck in this place. And we have to choose to go one way or the other. And uh, there was another man in the Bible, very similar to this. He believed in Jesus enough to be a disciple, but not enough to actually give his life and lay down his life for Jesus. His name was Judas. Jesus says, it's nauseating to me. Third problem they had was that they had compromised. Not only did this city not have hot water... Not only did they not have cold water, but they really had no good water source whatsoever. In those days when an army would come in to attack a city, what they would often do was lay siege to the city. So they would surround the city and cut off its access in and out so you couldn't get resources, you couldn't get supplies, you couldn't get the things you needed to survive. And so the army would just camp out there long enough. They didn't even have to attack you. They would just cut off your supply lines. And so you finally could not survive any longer. And uh, you didn't have enough food and water uh, to survive. So uh, you would just have to surrender. Well, um, this was a major problem for the Laodiceans because they had no water supply. So they were incredibly vulnerable to siege. And so what they would do is when they heard that an enemy was coming, they would send messengers out. Uh, and, and the leaders would go out and they would meet with the other army, the enemy, and they would have compromises. They would say, hey, what are you looking for from us? What do you need from us? What do you want from us? What is it going to take to get you to not fight us and not have a battle and not have a war with us? What is it going to get to just take you to go on to the next city? And they would begin to compromise who they were. They would compromise some of their wealth and their resources, their values. Uh, They would become less a part of the kingdom they were supposed to be a part of and more a part of the kingdom of this enemy because they were compromising who they really were. This is a problem with a lukewarm church. You see, what we do in life is we then start to compromise because we're not, we're not really allowing Jesus in to transform our lives, so we begin to compromise, and we make exceptions, and we allow things to happen with us and to us and around us that we shouldn't. We, we, we end up, and, and we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to be combative with anybody, so we go to work, and instead of living the life that we know we're supposed to live, we start compromising. Oh, you know, we, we allow people to say things around us that they probably shouldn't. We allow thing, people to watch things in our presence and talk about things and do things. And we go right along with them because we don't want to offend anyone. Well, Pastor, you've got to understand, uh, I have been praying for this person. And I don't want to offend them because when the time is right, Pastor, I'm telling you, when the time is right, I'm going to witness to them. And I believe they're going to come to Jesus. Okay? So you've been going along with what the everybody else is saying 
in, in an efforts not to offend them so that at some point you might see them saved. That's, that's the plan, Pastor. That, I mean, that's the plan. How's it going? It's going well. How long have you been working on this plan? Well, let's see. I, I guess we, you know, we came in and we got this job together at the same time. I guess it was about 1983. So I guess we've been working on this plan for 20 years, Pastor. Really? And it's going that well? I'm telling you, any day now, any day, it's going to be my time. No. No, it's not. Because by the time... We compromise time and time and time and time and time again. Then we finally stand up and say, okay, you need Jesus. They don't want the Jesus we serve because we haven't believed in him enough to live it all this time. So Jesus says, you're of no use to me. I vomit you out of my mouth because you're steadily compromising. We don't preach the word. We don't live the word. We don't, uh, we don't uh, apply the word to our life. And anytime somebody comes along to challenge us, we give in to them because we don't, I don't want to offend anyone. You know, the truth is Jesus offended people. He loved everybody. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give it all. But wherever he went, he tended to offend people. But through the process of it, people came to him. I don't want to be a person who compromises. I'm going to skip now to some solutions. I'm uh, over my time, so I'm going to go to the solutions. First solution is this. They had a water problem, and the, the Laodiceans decided to fix it themselves. So they went up to Hierapolis, remember the city that had the hot springs, and they said, what we need is those hot springs here. We're rich, we're wealthy, we can afford whatever we want, we need to get what they have here. we got to fix the problem. And then we wouldn't be so vulnerable to the, the attack of the enemies and all this. So what they did was they literally went six miles away and built an aqueduct or a pipeline to pipe these hot springs six miles all the way down the mountain to the city of Laodicea. And they piped it in. It was a wonderful plan. The problem was by the time the water got from uh, the one city down six miles to the other, it was no longer hot, but it was lukewarm. And even more than that, it had a sickening, nauseating flavor to it. So nobody wanted to drink it. The problem was, and what Jesus was saying to the church is, you've gone to the wrong source. He said in verse 14, um, I, these things says the amen. Now he's giving himself names right here, and he's saying who he is. Uh, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and then he says this, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, now this is a title not an order here. The, the Greek word for beginning that he gives is not referring to necessarily being first, although Jesus was first. But he's giving himself a title, and this word beginning literally translates as the source. So here's what he's saying. I am the source. You, should, you don't need to get your water from another city, from another place, from another person. You don't need to get uh, your, your life and your energy and your healing from somewhere else. You need to come to me. As Christians, we have to know who our source is. It, it is not Dr. Phil or Oprah or anybody else. They've got a lot of good ideas, but our source is Jesus Christ. That is our source. We've got to know who it is. So we have to realize our source is Jesus. The second solution is this. 
uh, in verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, and shame... Uh, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Three things that they were famous for in this city. Number one was their wealth and their gold. Number two was their garments, their fine linens. They actually produced a, a black cloth that was world famous, world renowned, and it's what brought in much of their wealth. And the third thing was they had this cream that they would put on your eyes. Uh, that would hopefully cause them to stop burning or itching or whatever and bring some healing to your eyes. And so remember in, in one of these verses, uh, Jesus said, you think you're wealthy and you have everything you need, but really you're blind and you're poor and you're wretched and, uh, and, and you're naked. Remember those things? He was addressing the three things that they had poured uh, and put their own value in. We build our value from the resources that we have, the gold, the garments, and uh, the eye cream. But Jesus says, you need to buy from me. You need to get your value from me. And if you do, watch what I'm going to do for you. He says, I I am going to uh, give you, I'm going to give you gold that's already been refined. My gold is better than your gold. And he said, then he said, I am going to give you white garments. White now is referring to, it's in stark contrast to the black linens that they were producing, referring to the sin that they were producing. And he said, I'm going to give you white or referring to the salvation that Jesus offers. So he says, come to me and and get your value in me because I'm going to give you white garments that cover your nakedness and your shame. Get your value from me. And then he says, uh, and then you, and he says, get from me your eye salve. Because remember, he said they were blind. You think you have this cream that you can put on your eyes that's making things better, but really you're blind and don't even know it. He says, so you need to get this from me that you might be healed and you might see. They were looking to the things of this world to determine their value and self-worth. But God is saying, I want you to let me determine your value and self-worth. We touched on this last week when we talked about how uh, the things of this world are variables. And when we put our value and our self-worth into the things of this world, they will change. They'll change. Actually, Laodicea means the rule of the people. And so what, what he was saying was he chose this church. One of the reasons he chose them because they would, they would change their value based on the popular beliefs of the world. And so he said, if you do it that way, your worth and your value will always be changing. If you put your value uh, based off of the car that you drive and you lose that car, your value and your self-worth will change. If your value is placed on the home that you live in and your home burns down or, you're, or you uh, cannot afford that home any longer, your worth and your self-value will go down. If you place your worth and your self-value on your spouse or the lack thereof, if that ever changes, your worth and your value will be changing as well. But God is a constant. God is not a variable. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we place our worth and our value on him and what he says about us and what he has called us to be and to do it's never changing the world can come and go my spouse can come and go my car can come and go my house can come and go whatever may happen may happen but i know who i am in jesus 
The third solution is simply this. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous. The word zealous here is synonymous with the same Greek word he used to define as hot. So he's referring to back when he says you're either hot or cold, he's saying be hot, be zealous, be passionate, be excited, be enthusiastic, be full of God. But how can you tell someone just to be or feel a certain way? How can I say to you, when you're sad, well, you just need to be happy? It's not that easy, is it? And if you're happy and someone just says, you just need to be sad, well, that's not that easy either. Uh, It is hard to just dictate our emotions change. But there's a little word here, two-letter word that is wrapped in power, and I want to show it to you. He says, therefore, be. When the word be is used in the Bible, it contains intrinsic power and inherent strength. Remember this. There is darkness covering, and there's just darkness, and God says, let there be light. And when he said that, intrinsic powers was released so that light would happen. In the New Testament, Jesus says to the the lepers, be clean. They were, they were covered in leprosy. Be clean. In that moment, he released power and strength into them to suddenly be clean when they weren't before, to be something that they were not. So when God says the words, be something, he is releasing intrinsic power and inherent strength in you to be whatever he's telling you to be in just a moment. It doesn't take years. It doesn't take generations. It doesn't take work. It's just be that. So now he looks and he says, he says, one of the solutions, how you overcome is to be zealous. And when he says that to us, he releases the power and the strength to be zealous for God. Well, you don't have to stir it up and you don't have to work on it and you don't have to strive for it. You can just be it because God says you can. Uh, Sometimes, though, we just need a cause. Sometimes we need just something to be zealous about. We've lost what we're passionate and enthusiastic and excited about. There's a story about Alexander the Great. And he was one of the Greek emperors who had conquered much of the earth. And a Persian sheik came in and brought him three dogs as a gift. They were three beautiful, big, monstrous dogs. And he said, he said Sir uh, Alexander, you're a great um, king and, and emperor, and I want to give you this gift, befitting of the king. These are the most courageous, the most passionate. These dogs have more heart than anything I've ever seen. They're great dogs. I want to give them to you. They're my favorite. King said, Well, thank you. Emperor said, Thank you. So the sheik leaves, and he says, well, I want to try these dogs out. He said, bring out a rabbit and let it run across. Let's see if they'll chase it. Rabbit comes running across. The dogs never move. They just laid there sleeping. So he said, well, maybe they need a little more. So he said, get out a fox and let the fox run across. So the fox runs across. They never even move. They just laid there. Lazy dogs. What's wrong with these things? He said they were courageous. I mean, you got a dog like this. I do. Lazy sucker. And, and so finally he says, all right, get out a deer. Surely they'll want to catch this deer for me. And so they bring out a, a stag, and the stag runs across. And one dog barely lifted his head, cracked his eye open, saw what it was, and went back to sleep. 
Alexander said the great, Alexander the Great said, these dogs are worthless. They won't do anything. They have no heart. They have no courage. They have no passion. And they have no enthusiasm. They have no zeal. They just want to lay here and sleep. They're worthless. What kind of gift is this? And he said, take these out and, and, and kill them. And they did. They took him out the back. They took all three dogs out and, and, and killed them and buried them. A little while later, the sheik came back and he said, Alexander the Great, he said, uh, did you enjoy my dogs? How are they doing? He said, no, those things were terrible. I took a rabbit, put it in front of them. They didn't do anything. I put a, a, uh, a, a fox in front of them. They didn't even move. I put a steer, in, a, a stag in front of them and they barely lifted their head, but they didn't do anything. These, these dogs were worthless. I thought you said they were courageous. I thought you said they had zeal and passion. The sheik said, Alexander, you are a great emperor, but sometimes you're not very smart. You see, the things you put in front of them weren't even enough to get them up and to challenge them at all. He said, but if you had put a bear or a lion or a tiger, they would have jumped up and chased that thing and tackled it and given everything they had to drag it back, even if it cost them their life, because you would have honored them with something worthy of their zeal. So the question in our life becomes, do we have something worthy of being passionate and zealous about? Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John the Baptist says, uh, I baptize you in water, but there is one coming after me, referring to Jesus, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to give you a fire and a passion. He's going to give you a zeal. He's going to make you hot and passionate and excited uh, about something. What is it? Well, we get the the next piece of that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. You want to be zealous in your life? Get the Holy Spirit in you, and it will make you passionate and zealous. But about what? About the same thing Jesus was passionate about, and that was to seek and to save that which was lost. It was to make a difference in the world. So he says to a lukewarm church and a lukewarm Christian who is not doing anything because we don't have enough care, we're compromising and, and, and being complacent in our lives, if you will get filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and if you'll get some zeal, in you enough to go out and actually make a difference and be a witness and speak to someone about Jesus. That's what the answer is to the lukewarm church. I'm almost done. The next thing he said was, he said, be zealous and repent. What does this mean to repent? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he says, to repent so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't seem like repentance and refreshing would go together, but actually they do. So you have to get a picture of what Jesus is saying. When you repent, what are you doing? You are giving and exposing your sins and your shortcomings to Jesus. So we come to the cross and we bring all of our stuff. We bring all of our mess-ups. We bring all of our sin and we lay it at the foot of the cross and we say, Father, I repent. Forgive me of all of my sins and cleanse 
cleanse me and wash me. What happens when you cleanse and you wash? You jump in the pool, you get refreshed, you get renewed, you get restored. And Jesus says, I'll take all of that. I'll take all of that on the cross and I'll give you my life. I'll give you my grace, my righteousness, my goodness, and I'll put that on you. So there is a refreshing that comes into our life when we repent. It's worth it. So be hot, be zealous, be cold, repent, and be refreshed. And the final thing that he says, he says uh, in, in one of his verses there, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The last thing we have to do is let Jesus in. Get a picture of this. We're inside living our lives. And Jesus is on the outside. The door is shut. It's our home. It's not his. So Jesus isn't going to just come barging in. He's got to be let in. And so he's standing outside of your home on the front doorstep, and he's just knocking. He's just knocking. You say, who is it? It's me, Jesus. I want to come in. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to help you. I want to heal you. I want to restore you. I want to refresh you. I want to renew you. I, I want to uh, rejuvenate you. I, I, want to, I want to be with you. I want to take away your stress and your worry and your strain. I'm right here. You just got to let me in. No thanks, Jesus. Again, thank you for your salvation, but we've got it. We're, we're all good in here. We've got to let Jesus in. He's standing at the door and knocking. And if anyone hears his voice, opens the door he said I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me we'll have a relationship we'll talk I'll help you I'll be a part of what's going on in your world I'll bring healing I'll bring restoration I'll bring refreshing whatever you need because it comes in the presence of the Lord but we got to let him in would you stand with me today I'm going to ask every person in this room, and if you're watching online, to do me a favor. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want you to ask yourself, am I hot or am I cold? Have I chosen one or the other, or am I just lukewarm? In my life, am I compromising? Am I complacent? Am I self-reliant? Am I shutting the door so Jesus can't come in? It's not about if I come to him for salvation, but it's about all the rest of the stuff. Is he involved in my life and in my world? If you want to say, Father, uh, forgive me, but I want to be one or the other. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want a fresh start. I want you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want you to bring refreshing into my life. I want to be what you've called me to be. I want to overcome this battle if that's you would you slip up your hand yeah. Yeah. All, right. all right I want to pray with you Father for every hand that was raised in this room for those watching at home you've touched our hearts Father and you say well we, we've been lukewarm we recognize that we were not one or the other but we were caught in the middle just enough of Jesus to not be comfortable in the world 
but too much of the world to be really comfortable with you, Jesus. So we kept you at arm's length. We kept you on the outside looking in. Father, we want to open the door today, and we want to let you in. Come into every part of our lives, not just in salvation, but in everything, Lord. Be a part of everything. We want to be those people that, that uh, bring healing and, and restoration and refreshing to the world around us. When they spend time with us through, the, through your power, Jesus, we want their lives to be changed, not because of how good we are, but because how much you flow through us. Lord, give us a chance to start again. Let us overcome this battle that we might uh, sit with you on your throne and with your Father, and we might overcome and have power and authority over the enemy in our life. I thank you for it right now. In the name of Jesus, amen.